Thank you for listening to this free audiobook created by Project Gutenberg and Microsoft AI. To learn more about the project or give feedback on the quality of a recording, please visit aka.ms/audiobook. The Bad Boy at Home and His Experiences in Trying to Become an Editor by Meta Victoria Fuller Victor Chapter 1 Mr. Diary I've been intending ever since I got home from Europe to begin written in a diary, but I ain't had no time, cause my chum Jimmy and me has been puttin' in our days havin' fun. I've got to give all that sort of thing up now, cause I've accepted a position in the unhearable profession, and when I get to be a man, and reach the top rung of the ladder, I'm going to Mac New York Howell. Pa, he wanted me to go to school, but I couldn't see it at all, cause a feller what's always going to school don't never know nothing but baseballin' and prize fittin' when he gets through. All them fellers what write in diaries begin by using a lot of highfalutin words what sound awful big but don't mean nothing. So I guess I'll be in the Foz hun, so here goes. You're only a choir of common noose, paper, Mr. Diary, so you needn't put on so many airs over your clean white dress, what only needs a morocker lethier mantle and gilt bracelets to make you look like you belong to the Astor House dude. We all know you was made of rags, and them rags might once have been in the mazy, lacy labyrinths of white linen what audaciously pressed gains the tender form of Lillian, the Didine. If you weren't there you might have been all ablaze with chain stitches and crushed onion stripes, closely encircling a couple of bin poles. No, not exactly bin poles, but the sharply, shatterly lower limbs of Sarah Jane Bernhard, the actress what got mashed on Damalher. Then, Agen, you might have been on some infantile prospective preservant, but you didn't stay on him long, cost babies and safety pins made you tired. Anyway you've got a history. Cost them little black spots on your right bustom looks like they might once have been part of Mrs. Dr. Walker's patent back action, masculine, dress reform troses, which she sent to the paper mill to get ground up into paper to mac books for the unlittenin of the vim men of our country. How's that for high, Mr. Diary? My muse come plaguing near running away with me, so I had to whistle. Down breaks. And slow her up. Now I'll begin to record my doings on your pages, so that, should the toes of my boots be applied to the patent bucket early in my useful care, the whole world will know what a treasure society has lost. I ain't giving you any bioblasses candy, but don't you let your members and organs lose sight of the fact that I, Georgie, the bad boy what's been to Europe, ain't no slouch. My pa says I'm a genius. I guess he's about right, only he or tears said I was a button one. Cross my hankerin' after a professional carrier has led me to accept a position in the public opinion molden shop what's known as the Daily Buster, Joe Gilly, editor and proprietor. Subscription price, $5 per year. No trouble to sign receipts. NB, special arrangements with ex-Senator Satan enables us to give our delinquent subscribers cheap excursion rates to the hot sulfur baths, via the Hey Dyes short line, our fitting editor corn doctor. This paper is run on red-hot independent principles, in a spicy, sparkling manner. In politics our motto is, Anhes men, regardless of party, candidates with bar less accepted. The above is the prospectus of the journalistic venture in which I have embarked in the capacity of typographical devil. So now, Mr. Diary, look out for the breakers. Chapter 2 I've just got my supper, so I guess I'll tell you about my first day's experience on the daily. Buster. 
I was down to the office at seven o'clock, and the managing editor, he detailed me to interview, the old papers and dust on the floor. By the ade of a broom, what was so old, it was most bald-headed, I succeeded in completely ridding the floor of its surplus stock of literature, and tobacco balls, what them printers spit out, when they warranted to use their mouths, to consign some feller, what wrote Orful to Halifax, or some other mild climat. I wonder if everybody, what them printers damn, goes to Hades costs if they do, and all printing offices is like orn, I guess us fellers won't have much company in heaven when we get there. They all a prepared to have a particular spite gainst a Mr. Copy, cause I hearn him being damned, more in a hundred times today. I guess the poor feller ain't got no show at all. I never seen the workings of a editor's sanctuary before. I used to wonder how they wrote all them long articles what everybody said showed the great genius of the editor, but I never knowed till this morning bout the labor savon machine, what is made of two pieces of steel, with sharp points on one end, and two rings on the other, what slip over the editor's fingers. When he's got them on, he takes off his shoes and stockings, and wades into a lot of old newspapers, clipping out little bits here and there, and potting em on a sheet of white paper. The machine works splendid, and Mr. Gilly says it's a sure antidote agin scribbler's paralysis, what all great writers is troubled with. Just for dinner the editor begun to get orful dry written the article headed. Pernicious pison, or wholesale slaughter, caused by the adulteration of beer with arsenic. So he sent me down to the barroom next door to get him a bottle of beer on thirty days' time. I just got back to the sanctum, and was talking out the cork, when the Methodist minister come in to arrange bout a big prohibition rally what comes off next week. He looked awful suspicious at the bottle, till the editor told me to take that bottle of gasoline to the foreman, and tell him to wash the forms with it, and be sure not to get it near a light, cause gasoline was awful explosive. I guess it got exploded cause, when the minister was gone, I went out to get it, and I couldn't even find a smell of it, so I had to go round to the next block for another, cause the editor's face wasn't good for Maureen one, in the same place, in one day. Say, Mr. Diary, did you ever get a whiff of the smell, thrown out by the paste pot, in an editor's office, what was established in 49? Cause, if you never did, you can't appreciate how delightful the concentrated extract of half a dozen glue factories would be, in comparison. This afternoon the editor perlitely requested me to consign the contents of ours to their last resting place in the ash heap, in our backyard. Many a silent tear did I shed over the cold and clammy remands of hundreds of cockroaches, whose young and useful lives came to such a sad and untimely end, in their brave efforts to explore the mysterious and fathomless depths of the Busters! Pace pot. I guess I must have forgot to wash my hands for supper, cos paws down in the cellar set in a trap for a polecat, and ma she swears she's going to have a carpenter take up the dining room floor tomorrow morning, and hunt up the rat what crawled under there and died. Chapter 3 Our office has got what is called the exchange fiend what comes in every morning when we get the mail and looks over all the papers, cos he's too mean to buy his own read and matter. I now by the way the editor looks at him, he'd like to kick him down three flights of steep steps, but I guess he borrowed a dime from him, about ten years ago, and he's afraid he'll touch the office furniture for it. I always like to help my employers out of a tight place, so, this morning, I run cross a paper that was printed this day several years ago, 
so I laid it down on the table where the fian did strike it the first thing, and then I got Orful busy dusting the bookcase. When he come in, he picked up the paper and looked down the headlines. I seen he was getting Orful excited, then he snatched up his hat and cedar stump, and run like he was chased by lightning. Pretty soon, there was more than five thousand people on the street in front of the office, and the editor got Orful scared, cause he thought they was going to run him out of town, on account of the big social scandal what he published yesterday, so he sent me to the door to see what they all wanted. When I got there the people was most crazy for news from the Chicago fire. I told them to hold on and we'd have out an extra in a few minutes, and then I showed the editor the paper what the fiend was reading, what gave a big account of the Chicago fire. When we got out our extra, we sold about 10,000 copies, with the article, what read like this. The latest dispatches from that city report Chicago all quiet, thanks to the fourth order of the mayor, in swearing in a large number of extra police for service during the sitting of the humorist's convention, and the great precautions taken by common council to see that no liquor was sold to delegates. You bet there was a mad crowd, when they found out there weren't no fire at all in Chicago. The exchange fans gone to New Jersey, cause it'll have time to blow over for Congress can promulgate a Strodition Treaty, with that government. This afternoon, I was appalled, my great big spirit fell down into my shoes, like a jump of lead. Alas how great the breach is, tween the author, and the columns of a newspaper, and how short the road, what leads to the waste basket, especially the one, in a printing office like the Daily. Buster, where the basket covers bout a square acric of floor. I was put to cleanin' up the waste basket, so as we'd have the paper ready, for the junk man, what calls round with his six-horse team of government mules, once a week, I called and helped ling Aaron over the contents, and sighing, when I thought, of the hopes what lied buried there. There was one little piece of poultry, written on a sheet of electric blue paper, and scented with otto of roses, and indited to. My dear George, I wonder if the poultryist meant me, when she wrote it, Cause if she did, she struck it just right, for Eve got it stowed away, in my pants pocket next my heart. There was another roll of manuscript, what weighed a pound, and come by express, without being paid. I guess the editor was mad, when he paid fifty cents charges, and found out it weren't no birthday present. A note with it, read like this. What unappreciating beings editors are. When they would let a genius what was capable of penning the following lines go unrewarded. Chapter 4 I'm in a peck of trouble today, what I'll have to trust her providence to get me outer. A typographical devil ain't esposed to know everything, anyway. Now the whole office is mad at me, cause I ain't a walk encyclopedia of typographical term. In the fust place, the foreman of the composing room's mad, cause when he told me to feck him a long stick. I went down street and hunted round till I struck a house what was being plastered, and brought him back a good laugh. When I give it to him I thought there was a eruption from a volcano, the way he sweared at me. He said he'd a no son to break it over my back, for not having sense enough to know that he bought his firewood by the cord. Why didn't he tell me in the first place he wanted that thing what printers used to set type in? Now the cashier's on his ear, cause he sent me out to by a wooden galley. I knowed very well I couldn't make no mistake there, cause I'm posted on ship's kitchens. So I asked him how big a one he wanted. He said medium, 
so I went up to Johnny Roach's shipyard and had them send a galley down to the office, what would be big enough for a good-sized schooner. You orters seen the cashier's face, when the six-horse team stopped in front of the door. The driver was going to leave the galley anyway, but the cashier paid him to haul it back, and wrote Mr. Roach that their boy was la baron under a slight aberration of the mind when he ordered it. But I think it's his mind what's got the aberrations instead, from sitting up so late with the red-headed grass widder what keeps the Borden house cross the street from our house. If it hadn't, why didn't he tell me he warn't at a galley for keeping type in, when the composin' sticks full? Fellows like him or tear be put on ice, cost they're too fresh to keep long. He only needs a tail to be a thoroughbred dude, cost he's got everything else what belongs to one. On my way home, at noon, I stopped to see a feller what was sellin' prize packets, at the corner of Nassau Street, so I didn't get time to eat much dinner. I was gettin' orful hungry bout four o'clock, when the editor asked me if I thought I could clear up the pie what was on the imposent stan. I didn't want to let him see I was so orful hungry, so I told him I didn't know. Well, said he, there's nothing like tryin', the foreman's show you where it is. I couldn't keep back my gratification, so I thanked him three or four times. You bet I was mad, when I found out there weren't no cherry or mince pie, not even dried appell, but only a lot of type what had got mixed up. I think it's real mean to make a little boy like me think he's going to get a big feed, and then not give him anything but a lot of lead what nobody else would try to eat. You orters see our imposin stone, it must be orful available. It's a great flat piece of marble, tattooed, all over, with funny hieroglyphics. I guess it's one of the old tombstones what come from ancient Troy. It's a wonder the editor don't sell it to the Smithson Institute, instead of using it for laying forms on. It's so awful in Pazin. Chapter 5 This morning our office was onheard by a visit from a typographical tourist, what introduced himself as John McNamee. He said he'd just returned from extensive visit in the western states, where he'd been for some time, for the benefit of his health. He is one of the most distinguished members of the political parties, called anti-monopolists. I admire a man what practices what he preaches. Now, this Mr. McNamee has never been known to contribute a cent to support in our great railroad monopolists, although he has traveled all over the United States by rail. Beside that, he wouldn't accept any accommodation short of a green line sleeper. When I asked him why he didn't wear his gold watch chain and silk hat, like all other politicians, he said his party was endeavoring to freeze out the big clothing monopolies by wearing their does till they fell off. I noticed his bust some swelling with pride as he spoke of the fruits their labor had brought forth in the failure of so many great clothing firms. He condescended to throw in some type, and when he got through, him and a couple of our printers adjourned downstairs to partake of a champagne lunch. I guess he warn't used to drinking light wines, cause he's been sleeping under the paper cutter all the afternoon, dreaming that he was being nominated for president on the great anti-monopolist ticket. Just before dinner the editor told me to tell the makeup man to kill Lawrence Ricard. Now, his store is where my pa buys all his groceries, and his wife and ma's orful good chums, and belong to the same sewing circle. Mr. Ricard always treat me right, and I didn't like to see a couple of bloodthirsty villains kill him without giving him Tim to say his prayers, so I called into his store and told him he'd better skip out or lay low, cause the editor was orful mad at him and had ordered another feller to kill him. 
he said he'd fix him. So right after dinner a couple of police come up to the office and arrested Mr. Gilly and the makeup man for conspiracy to murder, and they had to explain it and pay all the costs. I took a little vacation this afternoon and went out fishing, cause I remembered what Pa says after he's kissed Ma by telephone. So I thought them two bad men while be more enchanted with me if I kept at a safe distance. I'm awful afraid my journalistic carrier's going to be broken off short, but I don't think they ortair blamed me, cause the editor shudder told me to tell the makeup man to take out that local notice what read. Fresh vegetables and green truck received daily at L. I. Ricard's Grocery. Instead of making me tell him to kill Mr. Rickard, well, if I can't be a journalist and make a fortune, I know what I can be. I'll go to the office in the morning, and if there's any music in the air, I'll resin. And bury my hopes. Then I'll lease Dennis Ryan's old blind mule, what's too weak to kick, and go to peddlin' fish. The buster will bust for they make anything out of this shekin. Ain't that so, Mr. Diary? Chapter 6 Today has been a glorious day for me, cause it seems like I'd done something what was a honor to the profession. When I went down to the office I felt like my resignation would be acceptable, cause my services could easily be dispensed with. I left the door open when I went in so as I'd have a avenue of escape in case a mine exploded. Just as I got in the press room I heard a muffled voice say, Georgie, my boy, is that you? I answered. Yes, sir. Then I seen the editor reclining in a recumbent position, under the big cylinder press, looking wither in a sheet, and trembling like he'd seen his grandpa's ghost. I asked him what was the matter, and he says, Georgie, there's a man in the office what I said was a red-headed old snoozer what ought to be run out of town. Tell him I've gone to Coney Island to fight a duel with Sullivan, or say I'm out talking my morning pistol practice. Tell him anything, only get shut of him. I says, you bet your life, I'll fix him. So I went into the sanctuary, like I owned the whole business, and I seen his wonder walking up and down, swearing to himself, like he was repeating the responses in the Episcopal Church. Soon as he caught sight of me, he says, Young man, where am that red-headed, shallow-brand, lantern-jawed, squint-eyed, crooked-nosed son of a deadbeat? Show me him till I pulverize him so fine that his remands wouldn't bring five cents if you was to sell M for pure superphosphated binary bone. What did you remark? Says I. Show me the insignificant little puppy what said I was a red-headed old snoozer. Said he. Oh. You wish to see the editor. I'll call him. Says I. Then I went to the speaking tube what goes up into the composing room and sung out awful loud. Tell the fitting editor that there's a gentleman, down in the office, wants to interview him. Tell him he'd better load up his double-barreled, breech-loading blunderbuss with Danny Mike Cartrag cause the gentleman prefers a heated argument. Then I turned round and told the man that the editor d be down in a minute. He cooled right off and said, Thank you, my boy, there's no hurry, I guess you'll do just as well. I only called to pay for your valuable paper. Tell the editor my whole family couldn't get along without it. Even the baby lays awake all night crying for it. And then he handed me a ten-dollar bill and didn't W.A.T. for no change, for he only had a couple U.V. minutes to each a train in. Mr. Gilly was listening to the whole conversation, and when the coast was clear, he come out from his hiding place and patted me on the back and says, Georgie, you're a brick. You're going to be an honor to your profession. 
Someday you'll be a pulsator, cause you've got the gall of a sun reporter. I wonder if sun reporters sweat much, cause I never go galled less it was in summer when Pa made me play the fiddle with the old buck saw, get in the wood ready for winter. I guess I must be a hero, cause the sport and editor, when he heard what I did, took me to the photograph gallery and had my picture taken, so as he could pass me off for the new English prize fighter, what he's training so as he can lick Sullivan. Chapter 7 When I was round to the hotels, this morning getting the arrivals, I seen something on the register of the Grand Pacific what looked like a couple of spiders had been fit in and got their legs in the ink bottle and crawled over about a dozen lines. I asked the clerk what it meant. He called it, say till he seen what number the what is it had. After looking over his ledger he found that number 36 stood for Eli Perkins and a great big board bill. I've heard it said that it showed enterprise for a newspaper man to interview distinguished guests, so I thought it'd do pretty near as well to interview a distinguished liar. So I got the clerk to show me up to Mr. Perkins' room. It feel like I'd got up a rung or two on the ladder already, cause the editor thought my piece what I wrote about the interview was good, and it's going to be put into more morning's paper. I write it down in your pages, Mr. Diary, so as I can look at it when my heart grows weary struggling for fame and riches. After exchanging good mornings, the buster reporter said, Mr. Perkins, you're one of the biggest liars in America, ain't you? Who said I was one of them, young man, said he, getting mad, and coming over to where I was sitting, like he was going to formally introduce his patent lethier pumps to the patches what I sit down on. Who said so? Name him instantly and I'll brand him as an infamous liar. Me, one of the biggest liars in America. It's mean, too, contemptible. To think that I should have toiled a life to establish a reputation, only to be classed as one of the biggest liars of America. No, young man, you're wrong. I am the great I am liar of the universe. By this time our representative was feeling like he mystican his callan, but must air up courage, he said. Mr. Perkins... I'm a young aspirant for journalistic unhers. Can you give some points on the business, what I could use to advantage? Yes, my son, you bet your bottom dollar I can. Always bear in mind that the three first principles of modern journalism is prevarication, exaggeration, and magnification. For instance, if Talmadge, in his sermon, says he believes there's a hell, you want to be sure to write it up thusly. Rev Talmadge, having just returned from a short visit, held his hearers spellbound for an hour, yesterday morning, by his grand and vivid description of the mildness of the climate of a salubrious summer resort. This would be an excellent illustration of prevarication. Exagration would be like this. If a candidate of the apersition treats a fellow to a glass of beer, you want to say, the barrel's been tapped, and fabulous sums are being expended to influence voters, and never forget to head the article fraud, corruption, and forgery. If a six-pound baby comes to one of your subscribers, you warrant her size the farther up, and if he's good for twenty-five seegers, the baby's got to be twelve pounds. If he's good for fifty, make it eighteen pounds, and if he sends round a whole box, with the nodus, the baby's got to turn into twins. This would be a case of magnification. It shows journalistic enterprise. Why, I've known cases where a puny eight-pound boy got to be bouncing triplets, mother and baby's doing well all costs their papa had sense enough to send some whiskey long with the Seegers. Those are the principal points to bear in mind, and if you follow them up right, you'll become a great and good journalist. 
If you ever run short of sensations, get on the track of the Mercury, liar and follow him up, till you strike his mine of valuable information. How long are you going to be in the city, Mr. Perkins? Only a few days. I'm here fixing up my fences, and putting in a bid for the nomination for the presidency. I'm awful anxious to run Agen Ben Butler. Is there anything else startling that you know, Mr. Perkins? queried our representative. Yes, but you mustn't give it away, cause I'm short on Pullman stock. Do you see this? said he, holding up a piece of cotton, about six inches square. Well, I come down from Albany on a sleeper last night, and this morning I mistook one of the sheets for my handkerchief, and this thing is the sheet, but don't mention it, cause it'll make the stock jump afoot. Good morning, Mr. Perkins. Whenever I run short of lies, I'll call Agin. Chapter 8 There's something to pay today, is what the editor said to the cashier tonight, when I walked up to the desk for my two dollars in money and a bushel of glorification. Yes, it was to pay all day in town, cause there was a convention of the dude Denver crazy in the Grand Opera House, and the candidates had all the saloons leased, and were busy serving out free whiskey, like they'd got in Ohio. Mr. Diary, did you ever see a full-blood Democratic delegate from a country village? Well, just imagine a tall, lean, lank individual, with long hair, slouch hat, a nose what looked like it had been in collation with the elderberry pie, and a suit of Chloe's what was bought when old Father Adam's wardrobe of fig leaves was sold out by the sheriff of Eden County. That is a correct picture of them fellers whose hands is itching to grab hold of the disternies and post offices of America and if you'll take my advice you won't make no closer investigation, lest you've got money enough to spare to set him up. The aldermen of the city passed the resolution closing up the front doors of the S. Loons, cause they was afraid if they was left open something might happen what would hurt the reputation of the party in the common heard what do the votin. But then the delegates didn't mind circumventing the building, as long as they got a chance to circumvent some hot stuff when they got inside. After dinner, the convention was called to order, and the boss carpenter nay led a lot of old second-hand planks together, what they called a platform. Then the unhirable members, got orful full of enthusiasm, cost the nomination for governor, was in order, just then my chum Jimmy, what's working for the district telegraph cornpenny come in, and handed the cheerman a dispatch, what he read out loud. It said, The thoughts of the barrel was too much for the assembled multitude of the great unwashed and there was quietness in the hall, while visions of whiskey baths, free lunch stands, and clean paper collars passed before their eyes. Then there was a loud chair, and Joe Gilly was nominated by a clamishon. The rest of the ticket was put on the slate by order of John Kelly, and the delegates adjourned to the buster office, where the temperance editor regaled them, with a demijohn of appell jack, what the committee give him stead of cash, last time he lectured, on prohibition in Hoboken. When the crowd was cleared, Mr. Gilly asked me if I knowed the boy what brung the note. I told him he was my chum, and I'd wrote the dispatch for fun. Then he shook hands with me, and said I was smarter in chain lightning, and I'd get to be preserved in some day, cause I'd beat all the politicians he ever knowed at wirepulling. Then he thanked me, and give me a couple of seegers, one for Jimmy and one for me, to call it square. We're going to save em till tomorrow after dinner, cause it ain't often boys, like us, get a chance to smoke fifteen thousand dollar dollar seegers, and these muster cost that, cost the evening papers says Mr. Gilly paid thirty thousand dollars for the nomination.
He's been most everything but a Democrat, but he says he guesses he can stomach their doctrines till he gets to Albany. Chapter 9 Yesterday was Sunday, so I didn't mack no entry, cost the corpse hadn't climaxed. Just as we was leaving the office Saturday night I heard the city editor tell the political repertory I liar that he wanted him to hunt up a political ghost, cost the buster couldn't afford to let a little one horse, two for a cent daily, like the times, have the monopoly of the ethereal spirit act, not by a numerous long sight. About ten o'clock in the evening I saw the reporter pass in our house, on his way to Trinity Churchyard, so I run upstairs and boarded one of Ma's nightgowns and nightcaps, which she wears when she's embracing Morpheus. Then I tuck a short cut down to the seminary. I just got there, and was putting the last touches to my ghostly toilet, when I seen the reporter coming in the gate. When he got pretty near up to where I was I coughed sort o' loud and unearthly like. Well, you died to see him drop his notebook and get a fit of Holdy's shaken malaria. He was just recovering and getting ready to vacate the premises when I imitated the voice of the feller what says the long prayers at Ashen Grove Camp Meeting, and says, Young mortal newspaper man, what warned it's thou, encroaching on the peace and quiet of our last resting place, with thy terrestrial notebook? In the name of John Kelly, the omnipotent boss of the New York Democracy, who are you? Speak, said the reporter. Since you command me in the name of one of the gods, I will speak. See this brilliant plumage, said I, placing my hand where I sit down, now covered from earthly view. I am stalwart Conklin, the stalwart of the Republican Party, doomed for a certain time, till eighty-four, to strut a ruet on the confines of the political arena, attended by my humble page to Rose, old boy, shake, said the reporter, put ye out his bod and give ye mine a earthly pull. Soon as he found out he warn't talking to no angel. Who's going to be the coming president? Leeson, and I'll unfold the tale see yonder rooster, all bedecked in gold, said I, pointing to the weather vane on top of the tribune building. Well, put your hand to it, and you'll behold the man what my influence is going to carry to the White House. If you've got any spare change, put her up on Winniefield Scott Hancock, and count Mr. Conklin and Secretary of State, but don't you never give it away. Cause I'm play in a dubbell game. Give us a suck of your bottle, and I'll hide myself thitherward for my nightly game of penny ante with General Grant, who already is awaiting me behind yonder cloud of Havana smoke. Hold on, Rose, leave us a smell, said the reporter, as I shoved the bottle in my pistol pocket, and disappeared behind a tombstone. This morning the interview come out in the buster, and the whole corpse of Niskathurers of the other papers is detailed in divisions to walk all the summerneries in the hope of interviewing the ghost of James G. Blame, and the Demercrazy is wilder with enthusiasm than they was after four acres got drowned dead in whiskey out in Ohio. Chapter 10 I never could see why people with good sense don't surcise a little jubilant when they name their babies. So as fellas like me, what is a young aspirant for journalistic honors, wouldn't get mixed up on him. Now the city editor told me if I ever heard of any dog fights, or accidents, to report em, cause it'd keep me in practice. So this morning, about three o'clock, we was woke up by a awful loud pounding on the front door. Pa thought it was Biglas, just as if they'd knock at the door if they wanted to come in and steal. So Ma had to go to the winder, and she found out it was Mrs. Gould, that's my chum, Jimmy's mother. She was crying awful and wanted Ma to come over to her house, 
cost Jimmy had got the nightmare from it in too much mincipi, and fell out her bed, and she was afraid he'd brock his neck cause he hadn't spock a word since. I seen I had a chance to distinguish myself, so I put on my clothes and run down to the office. All the editors and reporters had gone to bed cause the paper was just going to press so I told the foreman all about the accident what happened to Jay, Gould. He got awful excited and said I ought to be promoted cause it was a splendid item and we'd be the only paper what would have it and then he got the paper ready for 50,000 extra copies. When I went downtown after breakfast I never seed such excitement. Hundreds of people was at every street corner reading the buster and discussed in probabilities of a panic. The newsboys was coining money selling our paper, singing out, All about the accident, and showing the people the buster's headlines, what read, Terry Bell Calamity. J. Gould, the railroad king, falls out of bed and sustains fatal injuries. The managers of the other newspapers was awful mad, and made all the city reporters hand in their resignations, cause they wasn't smart enough to each the item. Down in Wall Street there was a regular panic. The beers was just as happy as they could be, and most all of them made their fortunes before dinner, cause all the stock went down like lead. Just when a lot of the bulls was going to bust up and pay the creditors five cents on the dollar, who should walk into the exchange but Jay, Gould himself. You never seen such a surprised crowd any air. They all thought it was his goss till he splained that it warned him what fell out of bed a tale he said he knowed he was pretty late getting downtown. But they must excuse him, cause he was kept up pretty late, cocking up a cask of Western Union water. What sprung the leak? The excitement's beginning to wear off now, but you bet the busters got a big lot of free advertising and Mr. Jilly warned a bit mad. When I explained how it all happened, cost the Wall Street beers is going to esport him for governor, cost the busters made em all rich. Jimmy's all right again. He was only stunned, and he got out of bed in time to get down to the telegraph office. I feel awful proud of my chum now. I never knowed how much he was valid before. You see now, Mr. Diary, what a boy makes of himself when he associates with a rising young journalist, like yours truly, Georgie. Chapter 11 I didn't write nothing in you last night, Mr. Diary, cost me and Maria, that's my gal, was talking in the first night at the theater. Just when I was leaving the office the editor called me aside and asked me if I thought I was capable to report the first performance of Hosiery Henrietta or a boom in fancy goods. Cost the dramatic editor had gone and got mashed on the latest professional beauty from Cleveland, and weren't fit for duty. I says, You bet your sweet neck I can. So he give me a couple of comps, and a lead nickel for to buy candy and peanuts with. When I got home I dressed up in my Sunday school Chloe's, and went round and what while my gal was putting on her bandy line and rubbing her face with a red saucer what she says she uses for neuralgia. You bet, this devil felt proud. Promerinard and his gal down the aisle to the front orchestry chairs, what's reserved for us representatives of the Metropolitan Press. I got out my notebook and pencil, and me and Maria eat candy, talk sweet, and what developments. I'll pass over the prologue, and give you the report just as it was printed in this morning's buster. Last evening, the curtain in Niblo's theater rose to a large, appreciative, and bald-headed audience what sit in the orchestry cheers. The play what come on the stage for the first time in America was entitled Hosiery Henrietta, or A Boom in Fancy Goods. The plot was novel, 
romantic, and excruciatingly interesting. The principal characters is Henrietta, a aesthetic young lady, daughter of a Philadelphia lawyer, and Augustus Angerlinus Fizzlesprum, a dude, what wears a eyeglass and carries a gold-plated cane, what he chews stead of turfaki, cause his nerves is weak. Henrietta is orful sick bout Gussie, and would give her lock of horsecar wild's hair, what she carries in her bosom, if Gussie would only tumble and marry her. But Gussie wouldn't tumble if the hull of Broadway'd fall on him, cause he's mashed on a lot of duddiness what do the ballion act in the academ. The first act was very utter, in fact too utterly utter for utterance. The scenery was grandly sublime, being a combination of sunflowers and Baltimore oysters, what are said to be very aesthetic. The second scene is more commonplace, cause it represents a green room of a theater with the artists sitting round a table, making a supper off of Boston baked beans and champagne sauce. Gussie pairs in the background and gives the gals five dollars to dance a ballet for his own special benefit. Then they all cam to the front of the stage. We guess they belong to the female economist persuasion, cause they all paired to be very economical in goods when they made their skirts, or else they got their dresses wet, cause they've shrunk way up above their knees, and way down below their necks. The clerk what sold them their stockings must have warranted them to wash, cause they're all colors, and they're about the only part of their does what's anyways long. The dancing part of the performance didn't pair to be much appreciated by the older portion of the audience. Cost they shaded their eyes with their opera glasses and blushed on the top of their heads, where their hair used to grow. The gals then go through a lot of motions, dance in the racket, and Gussie sets them up. The first scene of Act Three is in Henrietta's privat booty war. She walks round, holding a big sunflower in her hand, and calls it to witness that if her dare Gussie don't make up his mind pretty soon to marry her. The tender thread what holds her to this mundane spear will soon come to a too utterly utter, sudden round turn. Then she whispers something to herself, and jumps about a foot, and exclaims, in an antiastatic voice, I will do it. By the mysterious hair, hidden in the opaque depths of ten cent a plate ice cream, I will do it. The scene then changes to a rehearsal in the theater, with Gussie looking at the bailey. All on a sudden the gal comes dancing out on tiptoes and moving her hands round like she was playing skipping the rope. Her closest pity, only they're a good deal more shrunken than what the other gals had on, and her lower extremer ties look like she was smuggling cotton from New Orleans. Gussie then gets mashed on her right away, and she don't pair to mind it a bit, cause she sat right down on his knee, and they begun a talking awful soft. Pretty soon she jumped about six feet, when Gussie shoved a pin into her stockings. Then he recognized her as Henrietta, and the Bailey bring on the happy denouement act by ballying round while Gussie and Henrietta embrace and kiss each other, and the property man lifts up his hands and says, Henrietta, you had better go put on your clothes yetter, cause you are too utter utter, drayest all in your hosierator. Gussie, you must let her, let her, and I'm sure you'll like her better when you've set to her, set to her, set to her, and we've drunk to your dud etter. Chapter 12. The editor was looking out of the winder this morning, one, who should he spy coming up the office steps, but Miss Samantha Longtongue, that's my Sunday school tea share, what's sweet forty and ain't never had a mash. He said he guessed he'd better not be to home, so I'd have to stand her off, cause she'd come to collect the quarter, what he'd forgot to pay, when he eat that plate of any rubber oyster soup at the church festival, about a year ago. When Miss Longtongue come in, she recognized me, 
and congratulated me on entering such a unheroble profession. Then she kissed me right on the mouth, and said she wished I was growed up to be a big man. Then she assisted me if Mr. Gilly was in, and when I told her, No. She said she was awful sorry, cause she'd come to collect a little bill, what she's gone responsible for, and what was pity near due. I told her I was sure Mr. Gilly would be awful sorry, when he come back and found she'd been to see him, cause I'd heard him say, he thought she was the pertest young lady, he knowed, and town, and of all them men, she was the one he'd have, when he got a wife. She says, do tell Georgie, and then she kissed and hugged me, all over, and assisted me how long the editor would be gone. I seen she was warning to know too much and wouldn't stand off with a sense so I told her that Mr. Gilly wouldn't get back till night, cause he was up to his turnies, arranging bout getting the big fortune what his uncle, what died in Australia, had left to him. The poor dare man, says she. Didn't I always tell them young snips of girls that so in circles that Mr. Gilly'd be wealthy some day? I guess they won't turn up their noises and call me a dried-up old maid, when Samantha Longtung turns into Samantha Gilly. I always knowed I'd be married for I got out of my teens, and to think my darling Joe was too honorable and bashful to ask my hand for he got his fortune. But I suppose he was afraid I wouldn't give this poor heart to a poor man, when so many wealthy suitors was round. Then she hugged me again, and told me to tell Mr. Gilly never to mind bout that quarter, cause she'd advance it out of her own pocket. Seeing she was so awful kind, I told her all about the fortune, how Mr. Gilly's uncle was sent out to rusticate in Botany Bay by the British government, but the barmy breezes of the bay didn't agree with his constitution, so he resined and took a boat for another isle land, and when he got there he borrowed some sheep from a farmer, and them sheep got marred, and then there was a lot of little sheep when they growed up and got married, and kept the ball rolling even to the three D and fourth generation, when the old man died. And now Mr. Gilly was going to have them auctioned off, and he thought he'd get about half a million for him. Then I showed her the plans of the Gramercy Park Palace, what the political editor is keeping for reference, in case he's called on to boom Mr. Tilden for preservant and told her them was the plans of the residence what Mr. Gilly was going to have built to take his blushing bride to, after they got back from a European honeymoon. Then I made her promise faithfully that she wouldn't tell a soul about the fortune and mansion, cost the editor of the buster was the modestest man in New York City. The Jesuits used to say that. The end always justifies the means. Some of the old Rhode Island Puritans may say I'm a liar, but I don't agree with them. Cause I've made two people happy. Samantha Longtongue is radiant, cause she walked up the street like she was trade in on air. And Mr. Gilly acts like he'd unloaded a hull team full of pig lead off in his mind, cause he knows Samantha'll have the news of the fortune all over town for night, and then he'll be able to stave off his bills, and run his cheek for whatever he warrants. For a whole year to come, he told me, when I was coming home, that I was a born diplomatist and ought to hire myself out to King Alfonso, of Spain, in case he'd get insulted again. Chapter 13. 6 p. m. Troyan, Y. Mr. Diary. You will notice by the above address, that you and me are away from home tonight, and I suppose you ought to have some explanation of our doings. Well, when I got down to the office this morning, Mr. Gilly told me to go right home and put on my Sunday clothes and be ready to start for Troy on the Laven clock train, cause we was going to open up the campaign there, 
and he wanted me to carry his sack hell, what had a demijohn in. When I got back, Gilly was orful busy with the old pallbearer of the Democratic corpse, from Shadak, fixin' the rate per caperta what was to be bid for votes. When we got to the depot, Vanderbilt had had one of his spells, and had been sendin' the public to hate eyes, so he would let the train W.A.T. ten minutes for a governmental candidate. Mr. Gilly was in an orful way bout gettin' left, cause he had to be at Troy tonight, and there weren't no other train what would get us there, so he paid a fearful big pile of money for a special. President Arthur, and a lot of other Republican dudes was going to start for Buff Flow on a fish excursion at one o'clock, so our train got underway right off, and every other train on the road was sidetracked to let us get past. There was a norful crowd at every station, what had come from miles round, to see us distinguished citizens. We stopped at Yunkers to water. The town has got a orful appropriate name, judging by the way the mothers brought the young curs for us to kiss. I don't care nothing for babies anyway, but I had to submit to a lot of slobbering for the sake of influencing votes, for my candidate. At Fishkill we stopped for refreshments, and was waited on by a brass band and the mayor and more babies. Mr. Gilly spoke a few words and thanked the crowd for their courtesies, and named a few babies. Just as we was steaming out of the depot, he dropped his red band in a handkerchief. You died to see them young gals tumble over each other and scramble for it. Before they got it, it was tore all up in little bits, and most every gal what got a piece, unbuttoned their jerseys, and stowed it away in their bosoms. Fishkill, like Yunkers, has got a pretty good name, Cossity knits a perfume, very suggestive of cleanin' fish, what was fresh when preserved in Pecanon was inaugurated. Mr. Gilly was feelin' orful proud of his regept shuns, all along the line, and it warn't till we got to Albany that he found out that the people took him for preserved in Arthur. Then he got orful indignant, and made the air of the curse smell like condensed sulfur gas, the way he sweared. He says his experience of unkindnesses has been pretty big in his lifetime, but that the people of New York State should take him for his accidency was the G.O.L. dernest unkindest cut of all, and he'd be struck by lightning with the assy's jaw, if he didn't make the first barber he seen shave them leg of mutton sideboards clean off, cause they was bringing his bald head into disgrace. When we got to Troy we was met by the central committee, and drove round to all the saloons, so as we'd see all the sights, and set him up for the crowd. I hear the band playing. See the conquering hero comes. I guess the populace is waiting for me, so I'll have to stop written now. Chapter 14 my bosom swells tonight with pride cause we've tucked the town by storm. If people weren't all Democrats before, they is now, cause our speechifying has struck in pity deep. The meeting was a grand success physically, morally, numerically, and I guess, votingly. From the first, we politicians was received with a perfect ovation. Chair after chair rend the air, and the scene was only comparable to the nightly concerts of the town lost cats, and their perimores on the back fences of 42 D Street. The silence was so great you could have heard a dudeen smile, when Mr. Gilly, in answer to a request to say something about the tariff, said, Gentlemen and other Democrats, I regret very much that I cannot accede to your request to mention that all-important question, the tariff. My heart is ready to bust with grief when I think how many of you listened last Thursday night to that Republican demagogue, John Sherman, and was deceived. I met that gentleman in a hotel in New York the other day. 
Someone asked him if he'd said anything in his Troy speech about the tariff. Yes, said he. I fed them dern country Galutes with tariff taffy till they was runnin' over. I shall refrain from saying anything more on the subject, cause you want to let your stomach settle again for you take another medic. Mr. Gilly finished up his speech by pointing to the glorious victory in Ohio and urging the Democrazy to work, work, for the day is at hand. Look at Ohio. A Republican legislator begot a baby, and it called its Second Amendment propersition. It put it up for the admiration of the people. The democracy had a baby also. It was christened whiskey. It grew fat, saucy, and popular. Second Amendment propersition appeared to have been a little too previous, when it come round, and grew to be a little, puny, sickly child. What would any mother have done? Wouldn't she have hired a wet nurse? Did the Republican mother do this? No, gentlemen, not by a long shot she didn't. She got ashamed of the baby, and abandoned it at the doors of the Vimmen of Ohio, leaving it to them, to bring up on the bottle. This was not all, gentlemen, the heartless mother got jealous, and tried to steal little whiskey. But the great buxom, German Fraulein, what he had for Nuss, couldn't see it at all. Too much bottle. Too much W. C. T. U. Sooth and syrup, and too many Vimmen killed the poor little cast-off, Second Amendment propersition, and the remands was buried last Tuesday. Little Whiskey is growing to be a big and lazy boy, mother and father doing well. This was too much for the crowd cost they got wild with enthusiasm, and shoved us in a carriage, and hauled us all over Troy. The love I bear the grand, ancient, and unhirabel party of the great unwashed, tempts me to pass over, the grand finale of today's proceedings. But my duty as a chronicler of actual events compels me to mention the fact that after our late drive tonight, the select circle of politicians partook of a banquet and become so full of gratitude, sour mash, and old Bourbon principles that they are now, downstairs, humbly but in the dust of the dining room floor, and confessing their manifold sins and trespasses to the open and obligineers of half a dozen nickel-plated cuspidors. Chapter 15 I feel most too tired to write in you tonight, Mr. Diary, but I guess I'll tell you what made me feel so zerted. After the meeting and banquet was over last night, the collier gentleman, what was in attendance, at the hotel, ushered me up to my room what was on the ski balcony tier. I got off my Chloe's and jumped into bed, as quick as possible, cause I was pretty well used up. I just got into a sleep, and was dreaming I was a candidate for presertant, on the know-nothing platform, with Benny Butler hung on the tail of the ticket, when I was woke up by feeling something like electric shock creeping over me. I begun to get scared cause I felt like I was getting the seven years itch, so I crept out of bed and lit the gas. On Zaminishin I found a fearful lot of little white lumps all over my body. Then I looked at the sheets, and a grande sight was presented to my vis hun. There on a little knoll, of the feather bed, stood the commander-in-chief, surrounded by his staff, issuing orders. Grouped all round, in regiments, divisions, and brigades, were comanies of privats in their full-dress parade uniform of scarlet. As each regiment defiled past the commander, the band struck up the national anthem of. The process hun was the most imposing I ever seen. The entire time taken in passing a given point was two hours and ten minutes. At exactly 2.20 a.m., the army formed in a holler square, 
with the officers in the middle. The high priest then passed round them, scattering incense all over the soldiers, and exhorting them to stand firm, cause victory, glory and spoils was right within their reach. Then he scattered some more incense, what smelt was than Limburger cheese, all over them. By this time it was 3 a.m., and I was getting somewhat nervous and cold, in my abbreviated costume, my merciful disposition and other considerations restrained me from dealing out wholesale slaughter to the enemy. While I was trying to devise means to recapture my fortress, without incurring the risk of an epidemic, I seen the army form, in five divisions. The one under Maja General Bloodsucker, being ordered to scale the walls and take a position on the sea limb. The other four divisions to assume the offensive, and attack me simultaneously on my flanks. Alas for me, too soon, I seen, my mercy had been ill-timed, nothing was left me but to make hasty preparations for the defense. Quickly I grabbed the wash basin and slop bowl and placed each under a leg of my chair. There was nothing else in the room, what I could use for a moat. In desperation I seized a copy of the New York Sun, Presbyterian Banner, and a book entitled Biblical Reasons Why, Plas in the Sun and Biblical Reasons Why, under the remaining unprotected legs of my chair, and holding the Presbyterian banner over my bed with a fiendish laugh, I mounted my forty-four cast hun, and awoke the attack. The corps on the seal inn, under General Bloodsucker, was ordered to take the initiative. From in in a compact phalanx, the band playing the while, they simultaneously took the perilous leap, landing right in the middle of my defense. Poor fellows! They met the fate of many others miscalculate the distance they had fallen upon the funny column of the Presbyterian banner, and its well-known soporific effects completely overcome them. Seeing the discomfort of the bloodsucker's command General Robeson advanced, on the dub bell quick, over my N.Y. sun barricade. He had almost reached the leg of my chair, when urging his men forward he crossed the line, and rushed right into death, yes a sudden and hoary bell death. Poor fellas! They didn't notice in their hurried adiance that they were attempting to cross a sarcastic and vengeful double-led editorial on the United States Navy by Charles A. Dynamite. The survivors will no doubt erect a monument over the remains of their brave and daring comrades, bearing the inscription, Died of Broken Hearts. General Robert Ingersoll, seeing the destruction of Robeson's forces, determined to advance slowly, he had just scaled the back of my barricade and was preparing for a rush, when his eyes caught sight of the title of the book. He immediately sounded the retreat. Biblical reasons why was too much for him, and he did not feel like crossing the chasm, and exposing his men to more numerous and hotter perils. A council of war was then held, and it was decided to get the forces all together, and make one determined effort, to capture my fortress from the sea. A half-burnt mock was obtained, and a company of soldiers embarked upon it. The machinery of the transport must have give out, cost the boat became unmanageable, and its living freight, seeing their hopeless condition, joined in singing. We're going down to glory. By this time, the sun streaming through the cracks of the curtain warned the survivors of the approach of day, and a general recall was sounded, and the entire force retreated to their impenetrable fortresses in the cracks of the bedstead, leaving me completely master of the situation. Now, Mr. Diary, can you wonder at my feeling somewhat tired after such experience, and a tedious ride down from Troy? Perhaps you may consider me a liar. 
If you do, you are mystikin, cause every word I have written in you tonight is the solium truth, without any prevarication, exaggeration, or magnification, and besides that, everybody what knows me, since I packed away my petticoats, will tell you, I'm a little Georgie Washington. Chapter 16 Today was the grand opening of fall and winter styles at all the big dry goods and millinery stores. Clara Bell, what does up that business for the buster had gone and got completely brock up on a fifty-dollar bonnet. What she said was the cutest little thing she ever seen, so she had to go right up to Hackensaw and see if she couldn't squeeze the money out of her old backler uncle. What dotes on her? Mr. Gilly would have discharged her only he'd forgot to pay her salary up in full for the last six months so he had to make the best of it, and send me out to report it in her place. The following is what'll appear in tomorrow morning's buster. The first place our representative perambulated himself to was lords and tailors. He was met at the door by an aggressive dude, to whom he presented his pasteboard, and who immediately put him in charge of a demonative cashier, what scorted him to the made-up suit department. This department was fearfully crowded with ladies, what were passing compliments on the dresses. The most expensive soot on exhibition was imported from Paris, and is made with a red and green petticoat, built up together so as it'd look like a checkerboard. Over this petticoat, and running down the back, from the waist, and under Latin hills and valleys, what was formed of a lot of the cheap, two-for-a-cent metropolitan journals, was a ski-blue satin corsage, with a long train, the front of the skirt was composed of a lot of curlicues, suspended from the sides, looped up in the middle, and made of illusionary stuff, so you could see the petticoat. The whole business was blowed up like the upper half of a balloon, only a little more so. Over all this was a polonaise, with panniers stendin' from the neck, down to the waistline and made tighter in dernishon. This costume is the creation of worth, the masculine mill learner, and cost five thousand dollars. It was imported expressly for the wife of a uptown plumber, but since she sent on her measures, she's been living so high that the steam derrick, what she bore to purpose, has utterly failed to lace her corsets tight enough for her to get into the dress. While our representative was present, the costume was purchased by the wife of the millionaire editor of the Saratoga Eagle for $4,800 cash. A sweeter and a peach little Dudine informed us, in reply to our questions, that jerseys would be worn dub bell breast behind that the regular shun bustle would contain at least six New York heralds, covered over with a Texas siftins, for the benefit of the occupants of the church pew, in the rear of the wearer. That Crin Islands would average four feet, six inches, in diameter, and would be provided with the new anti-ankle spos and spiral springs. That basks would be cut very low, and filled in with gripper lace. That corsets would be provided with rashes and set screws, to enable them to be drawn more tightly round the waist. That owing to the relative cheapness of wool, and its quality of spandin, instead of shrinkin', it would entirely tack the place of cotton as an indispensable adjunct in making up the fashionable vimin. In reply to our inquisitive reporter's last query, the young lady blushed way up behind her ears, and exclaimed, Oh, you horrid newspaper man! Don't you know, flutin will always remain in style. The hosiery department hadn't opened up when our reporter called, but he was allowed to inspect it. It is in charge of clerks of the male persuasion, cost they're supposed to know better than girls what'd look best on the fair purchasers of these Indies Pencerbell articles of feminine apparel. 
The latest novelty represents a little mouse, what's crawled about halfway up, and got stuck. They are in all colors, and are designed for wearing in wet and slushy weather. The recalled good skews stockings, cost they give the blushing wearer good skews, for not getting her skirts wet and muddy. The mouse looks awful naturel, and some of these days, we'll hear of some gallant corn doctor of the L.R. R. Getting a kick in his stomach for grabbing hold of one, while he labors under the impress hun that he is relieving the fair wearer of an indescribable agurney. The neat thing in a hat is a little bunch of yaller and green velvet, surmounted by a diminutive Tomas cat, what's got his back up and his tail running down the lady's neck. It costs a hundred and fifty dollars, and the ladies all say it's too sweet for anything. Women's logic is curious anyway. If they're all mashed so bad on Tomas cats, why, in the name of Penelope Pennyfeather, don't they sit up some moonlight night at a backwinder armed with a dubbell barrel shotgun and slugs? Then they'd get a darn sight more and they'd use in a whole lifetime. This would pair to be more sensible than paying lords and tailors $150 for a little insignificant kitten, what ain't cut his eye teeth yet. Chapter 17 Since the big reduction in price of the morning papers, then what didn't come down much have been using all sorts of schemes to keep up their circulations. So yesterday Mr. Gilly Desi dead to run a couple of columns of free wanted advertising. To start the ball a-rollin', he made me write off a lot of dummy wants. I put in most everything I could think of, from the soft and Leuven personnel to the big and clumsy steam engine. When I got down to the office this morning there was a awful crowd of them men on Park Row, all ranged along the edge of the pavement with about a hundred extra perlis keeping them in single file. I couldn't for the life of me imagine what was up, till I went upstairs and seen the procession filling in and out the relegous editor's office doors. Then I remembered the advertisement I wrote, what read like this. Warned, a rotund, buxom, good-looking and good-natured madden, sitterbell for a wife. One what knows enough to put on style and run a fashionable establishment. Apply early at this office, to the relegus editor. Now, our relegus editor is pretty sweet on them men anyway, so he tuck it all in good part, and kissed and hugged every one of them, telling em he'd let em know by letter, when he'd made his choice. They kept swarming in all the morning, till you thought all the them men in New York was warrant in a man. About eleven o'clock we all noticed something shut out the light of the doorway. Pretty soon it turned round and come in sideways and sung out. Oh, were! Oh, were! Is the bloomin' boy what warrants a rotund, buxom madden for his wife? Then we all tumbled that she was the Bory Museum fat woman, so I pointed to the relegus editor. Then she grabbed him up in her arms and squeezed him till you could hear his ribs snappin'. When he got black in the face she thought she'd made a mistake in the man and seized hold of Mr. Gilly, so I remembered it was gettin' on towards dinner time. At the door of the office I met the choir singer in the little church round the corner what the relegus editor's naged to, and she told me to tell him he was a horrid wretch, and she was going to sue him for breach of promise, so she was. On my way home to dinner, the managing editor overtook me, and laughed and said that was a pretty good joke I'd fixed up on the relegus editor. I told him I didn't mean nothing by it anyway, cause I didn't expect any girl think he was good-looking enough to marry him. Now our managing editor just got marred last week, and he's boarding at the Metropolitan Hotel. Just before we got there he give me a ten-center, 
and said that's for the laugh him and his wife to have when he told her about the joke. I guess he got all the laughin he wanted, cause he'd no sooner got into the hotel door, before every man, woman, and child run up to him, and tried to give him a baby, what they said was his. Babies was lying round promiscuously, all over the desks, floors, and barroom. The rooms, upstairs, was chock full of babies. Extra cots was laid out in the halls, and every cot had half a dozen babies onto it, and every baby had a card pinned on its does, what read Tom Wilson, Susie Wilson, Patty Wilson, Biddy Wilson, and every Wilson you could think of. Eight pages of the register was filled with their names, and every page was headed with the editor's own name, John Wilson, father. When he got to his own room, he found his wife crying, lick her heart was Brock. Soon as she caught sight of him, she let out a shriek what brought everybody in the hotel to their room, and sung out. John Wilson, you're a monster, you're a vagabond, you're a wretch, you're an infernus scoundrel. Take me back to my mama, right away, and if you've got a spark of manhood about you, you'll go and make what little reester touching you can, to the mothers of these worse than orphans. Quicker and lightning, Mr. Wilson tumbled, and laugh in a fiendish grin, he sung out in accents wild. Get me a Gatlin gun, and load it down to the muscle with thirty laven charges of Danny might, and let me get a shot at that incorrigible imp of Hades, the buster's devil. Then Carmen down a little, he took this morning's paper out in his pocket and read out loud to the crowd. Wanted, a fine, held thy infant for adoption. No questions A.S.T. Leave it at the Metropolitan Hotel for John Wilson, managing editor Daily Buster. This put everybody in good humor again, and, after setting up the drinks for the crowd, Mr. and Mrs., Wilson went out to the country to hire a farm and some them in to take care of the babies till homes could be secured for him. I guess him and his wife sickened on babies anyway, cause I heard him tellin' the hotel clerk that they'd had all the babies round them that they'd ever have, by gumbo. And now, Mr. Diary, I must close for tonight, Cause I've got to smoke the twenty-five cent or what the relegus editor give me for the laugh he'd had outer my joke on Mr. Wilson. Chapter 18 Last night Mr. Gilly give me a invitation to the fancy mask ball, what all New York's been twerking bout for the last six weeks. It was to be a Tony affair, so when I got home I went all through my wardrobe, but couldn't find nothing fancier than the Chloe's I wore when I painted the back fence at our house red with green trimmings. I seen they was hardly practical, cause there was a faint odor of cows and horses clinging to them what the heat of the ballroom might develop in a way what wouldn't be satisfactory to myself, or the delicate noeses of the other aristocracy present. So I put em away with the S.Y., and had just about made up my mind that the other ballers wouldn't be treed to my distinguished presence, when I remembered the box of Chloe's what our dining room gal, what was pretty fly, left, when she loped with the bugler and all Ma's silver spoons. It was only the work of a minute to pry open the lid, and a dazzling array of beautiful and fancy does met my vis hun. Then I shed all my things and commends the arduous work of dressing. I say arduous, cause it was perilousin, discomfortin, and puzzlin. I used to wonder why Ma tuck so long to dress, when she was going anywhere, and Pa was swearin' and hurryin' her up. Now, I wonder no longer cause I know how tis myself and after my own experience in pins, buttons, strings, laces, garters, and things, I shall ever look upon them men as martyrs. The dress was just short enough to show my blue striped silk stockings, 
and bout two inches of embroidery. The stockings was a little too big, so I had to fill em up with handkerchiefs. The waist just but tinned up on me, at the waistline, but it took half a dozen pillar cases, and a couple of sheets, to stuff the upper part of the front. I had to put a reef and crinny line, cross it showed, and it tuck ma's patchwork quilt to mac my bustle big enough for style. When I was all through dressin', I looked like a Fifth Avenue daisy, every particle of my dress was complete, only I culled and set down very modestly, cause my hoops was too wide. Then ma she fixed up my hair, and made a mask for me, and said I was a true-to-life Parisian griasset. Soon as I got in the ballroom, every masculine character got mashed on me, and warranted me for a partner. Every one I danced with treed me to ice cream and caramels, and I guess I eat supper about seventeen times, in fact I eat so much, that a terrible strain round my waist, warned that if I indulged my appetite any more, a fearful catastrophe was Learbell to take place. About two o'clock I begun to get tired, and warranted to go home, but my partner, what was Mr. Gilly, traced in the costume what he sent me down to Ike Israel's on Chatham Street, to hire for him, and what the Jews said, represented Tom O'Kiltry a Texas brigand, promised to get a carriage, and drive me home, if I'd stay till three. I was greed, so I danced three or four more sets with him, and eat some more cream. Then he got a close carriage, and told the driver to drive awful slow, cause he was afraid the mose hun of the carriage have a bad effect on my nerves. Soon as we got started he tucked me on his knee, and got to hugging me round the pillar slips and sheets and kissing my left ear, and getting otherwise firmlier, so I seen the moment had come for me to be myself, so I lifted up my mask. Soon as he caught sight of my face he exclaimed, Oh, the devil! Yes, sir, says I, tis the devil. Then, telling the driver to stop the horses, he lifted up his foot and gin me a kick what landed right on Ma's patchwork quilt, and said, Go to the devil. I guess he's mad at me, only he pretends not to be, but that's put on, cause he's afraid I'll gin the whole thing away, and then the religious editor and Mr. Wilson'll have the laugh on him. The society editor's report in this morning's buster says, the Parisian griasset was conceded by everybody present to take the unhers of Belle of the Ball. The known ones claimed that it was Miss Ellen Terrier, the latest artistic importation from England, and that Mr. Vandybilt, as the Texas brigand, seen her home. If this is a fact, there'll likely be some dome-stick thunder flying round in an uptown mansion. Chapter 19 Our horse reporter is a reglar vimin hater, and he'd walk round a whole block, for he'd meet a gal what it tried to flirt with him. I guess he's a grass widder that used to have a woman, what made him tow a chalk line, and he ain't never got no divorce from her yet. His affections is all lavished on good-looking horses, and he'd give more for one of them than he would for Lily Loncry or the whole curbadel of professional booties. I always did think it was a pity for a good-looking man like him not to have some vim in what was brock in their hearts and everything for him. So this morning I sent out notes to a couple of gals, what I thought was warranting to get mashed, telling them to call at the buster office, and A.S.T. for the horse reporter, cause he was dead struck on them, and warranted their company, on a trip to Boston tonight. About one clock, a great stout woman, what looked like a reglar bruiser, come into the office and inquired for the horse reporter. I showed her into his room, and shut the door, just enough so as I could see all what went on. 
Air you the spalpeen, what calls herself the mayor reporter? Says she. I am the horse reporter, madam. Has your mare got the glanders? Me ma got the glanders, your insurlent puppy, is that fat your say? Me ma what's been neath the old sod fair ten years. Don't cast any miscomplimentary reflections, young man, on my ma what died of anti-consumption, or I'll plant the fore-end of me toe-nails fornance the pit of your stomach in a way what'll mack your feel like a he-mule had bruck loose. Ere you're the individual what sent me this invitation, said she, handing the reporter the note. I assure you, madam, says he, there must be some misdack, cause I didn't never write this note. Yees didn't, you wretch, is that the way you're after crawling outer it, after trying to ruin a respectable witty like myself? Perhaps you don't think I'm good-looking enough for your, your babby-faced, downy-lipped, banged-haired, slim-legged, tight-laced, corset-cased, monkey-tailed son of a newspaper dude. If my pat was livin' he'd give you a lesson next time you tried to mash a young witty like myself, moin' that now, will yer? She hadn't hardly got out of the door when a tall, lone, lank in, what had seen about forty summers and two numerous to mention winters, come sullying in, with a slittily elevated skirt what exposed to view a couple of white and blue shafts what might have been pipe stems if they hadn't been her ankles. Bowen sweetly to the law reporter, she requested to be shown into the horse reporter's office. Soon as I'd showed her and she took a chair, what was pretty close to the horse reporter's, and said to him, Here I am, Georgie, dear. I do feel so nervous, you know. I'm so very young and inexperienced, and my ma says a young and innocent gal lick me or tend to trust myself to go to Boston with a man. But then, Georgie, dear, you don't look one bit norty. Won't we have a nice time, darling? Then she reached over and kissed him right on his mouth, and blushed when she said, Don't, Georgie, yo or turn to kiss me till we're better acquainted. Kissing him again she sat right down on his knee, and exclaimed, in a horrified tone, You horrid norte boy if you do that again, I'll strike you with a feather real hard, so I will. All this time the horse reporter was the picture of de pair. Suddenly espying the uptown divine waitin' for the managing editor, in the room opposite, he said, My dear madam, your sweetness is all wasted on me, cause I'm a marred man, what had twins last night. See, in yonder room, is the horse reporter, the man you're looking for. By the time she was on the preacher's nay, and was going through the kissing performance, the horse reporter had the whole staff, looking through the half-open door, and the first day the buster's stock of scandals runs out, we have one already, about the minister kissing the madden of forty. Chapter 20 Today is Sunday. I know I or enter right in you today, Mr. Diary, but, as I've had to write up a serious comic, religious report, I don't see no big objection to giving it to you. Early this morning, the religious editor called up to our house, and said he'd give me a quarter, if I'd go over to Brooklyn instead of him, and report a sermon, cause he warranted to go to the little church round the corner, and make it up with the choir singer, what was going to sue him for breach of promise. I was greed so I went over, and the usher showed me into one of the front seats, and didn't collect no admission fee often me, cause, I guess he knowed I had a deadhead ticket. Right in front of me was a corpulent woman, fatter in a purpoise, and the wife of a Brooklyn alderman. She had a hat on what was as big as a pun's hun head, what she kept twistin' round, so I couldn't see a thing what was going on on the stage. I guess the woman weighed bout two hundred and fifty pounds, and her bustle was as big as a elephant's. 
The case was getting disparate for me. Kasai'd agreed to bring home a report of the performance. The first part was just about over. The blonde artist was singing a solo, and the audience was so interested that they all stood up. I seen the time had come for action, so I stood a pepper box what I had in my pocket on the seat. Soon as the lady went to sit down, she hadn't calculated on any obstacle, and didn't try to control her gravy towel momentum, so she come plump down on top of the pepper box. A loud, roaring sound, then a terror bell splash and shook the building, and the air was filled with flying debris, woman, pieces of Chloe's, hoop skirt, hat, buttons, little bits of rubber bustle, strings, and things innumerable and unmentionable. I never seen such a wreck in all my life. The lady landed right in front of the minister, where some of the choir girls run to her rescue and kivered her up with shawls, putting her in a carriage and sending her home. Soon as the wreck was cleared and order restored, the minister said, I came here this morning with no idea upon what subject I should speak, trusting entirely to providence to reveal to the congregation and myself a suitable one. You see, my hearers, for yourself, my trusting has not been in vain. My text will be, and Eve bored a bonton system, and made herself a fig-leaf polonaise, cut a law princess, and trimmed with dandelion rookin and sunflower braid. Then she fleeced the hiram, and of the wool thereof she formed a big bustle, and Adam got mashed on her fine does, and she turned up her nose at the washerwoman's darter what didn't have on nothing but a palm-leaf jersey, what fit her too soon. You ladies are all alike, and you get your line of dress from a pretty long and direct line of ancestry. I don't think a fine dress is a sinful appendage to any lady. In fact, I like to see a lady dress well, but to be dress well, a lady ought not to practice deceit, or act a lie, for there is such a thing as actin' a lie. Now bustles are the devil's particular delight, cost there a form of deceit, in fact, I verily believe the devil is in every bustle, and actin' on the biblical advice, the ladies all say, get thee behind me, Satan. Hereafter, ere balloon busless will be considered contraband, in this church, and lattice suspected of carrying them, will be subject to a search in, and rigid diminution before being admitted. Chapter 21 Tomorrow is election day, so tonight the Republicans have been having a grand free street exhibition. I'll be awful glad when the election is over, cost the zeitment, and late hours, attending the campaign, is wearing out my nerves. Jimmy and I have just gotten Mr. Diary, and I think paraders are wondering what struck him by this time. About half past seven, the torchlight procession got together, at Cooper Institute and began the march uptown to Union Square where the liars was to hold forth. There was a Norfolk lot in the procession, and some of them had banners, with a pole cat eating a rooster. I got indignant, cause they was entirely too fresh, so me and Jimmy run on ahead of them, and sprinkled the street with torpedoes while we bored a purpose. You died to see them marching right on to em, singing out. Down with Gilly and the whiskey suckin' de crazy. Soon as they stepped on some torpedoes, they didn't W.A.T. for marching orders. Cost there was a norful noise, like the democracy was in league with the subterranean bosses, and they was celebrating their Independence Day. I was sorry to see them disband, cost they looked sorta pity, and the band what they had in the procession made things lively. They had a big platform erected what was meant for the big guns of the party, to fire off lies and eloquence from, soon as the procession arrived. So me and Jimmy run up there and what till the crowd what had got der morelized the rove, and the speaking begun. 
The fuss speaker what held forth was a clerical-looking cuz, what paired to be only about twenty-one years old. He give a long description of what him and his party had done for the country during the late unpleasantness, when the apersition candidate, Mr. Gilly, was to hum, busy wearing out his petticoats. This made me matter in Dernishun, cause I knowed the feller was lying a reglar bald-headed lie, cause if Mr. Gilly was wearing petticoats when the war broke out, his pa and ma ortayer kept on letting him be a gal, and then, piraps, his hair wouldn't all fell out. The people didn't pair to zibit much enthusiasm over the feller's remarks, cause he hailed from out in Ohio, and citizens out in such far away and semi-uncivilized states ain't supposed to know as much as us New Yorkers anyway. Another feller got up and said, Ladies and gentlemen, this is the eve of a great election. Tomorrow us free men'll go up to the polls and deposit our ballots into the box, and thus signify our choice of rulers. Every one present knows the disgraceful condition of the New York democracy. Its platform is rotten in every plank. Its leader Mr. Gilly is the double extract of rottenness, and the whole rank and file of the party is in a fit state to be condemned by the fresh meat inspector. How is the Republican Party? It's sweet and pure as a newborn baby. Its leader is as clean and white as new milk, and all Hades couldn't find a flaw in the platform on which we stand. Just then I guess the devil must have taken exceptions to the remarks, cause I'd pulled the rope what I'd fixed to the loose leg of the platform, and the whole business toppled over the speakers and vice presidents of the meeting, presenting a free acrobatic tumbling show to the amused and interested audience. All the people what was present and seeing the platform give way are feeling blue and superstitious, cause they're afraid the devil's in league with the democracy, and I guess they're about right. Ain't they, Mr. Diary? Chapter 22 Mr. Diary, at this written, I guess you're safe in hanging out the hemail sheikin, cause all the reports from this city are giving Mr. Gilley enormous vote, and you bet this devil is feeling proud, cause didn't he nominate the governor? And bout Tompro night the whole stat'll know that he lect him, too. I was kept awful busy this morning till all our repeaters had scored their votes. Them Republican fellers is awful tricky, and I had to do some tall flying round while I was watching them, so as they wouldn't steal our repeaters, what we'd imported a purpose from Jersey and Philly DFI, and Mac M vote in another precinct for their ticket. They call that kinder business equalism, but in this case, it didn't equalize worth a cent, cause I told them all that they warranted to keep their eyes on them fellas what claimed they was Republicans, cause they was Pinky Tons detectives in disguise trying to hatch up a case of illegal voting egg in them. That scared em off, so they each took their two dollars and skipped over to Jersey City. Soon as I got em safely off, I seen the Republicans was getting ahead of us, so me and Jimmy went down to the office, and borrowed the scientific editor's electric pen, and wrote bout ten thousand notes, addressing them to all the dudes whose names is in the directory. Then Jimmy went out and got a lot of other messenger boys to take him round. In less than half a hour the streets of New York and Brooklyn was crowded with dudes, real live dudes, livelier than they was ever known before, peddling democratic tickets round, and deserting all the tailors, and barbers, and threatening to withdraw their custom if they didn't vote the straight democratic ticket, an electionaire for Mr. Gilly. I guess I'll have to be round tomorrow night, cause there'll be some fun. When Lillian comes out the stage door cause every dude in New York has got a note what read like this. Then I send out notes to all the bank presidents and clerks, 
and asked everyone I could think of what had the handling of other people's money. They was short and sweet, but somehow they brought out a awful lot of voters. The notes read like this. If you know what's good for you, you'll vote for Joe Gilly for governor. Remember. From one who knows you as well as you know yourself. All the Methodists got notes from the conference committee, saying that they'd discovered that the Republican candidate was a rank infidel, and had visited them all to vote for Mr. Gilly, cause he was going to donate a big pile of money to foreign missions. Every member of the Society of Henpecked Husbands, what is very strong in New York, was requested by a letter signed by the president to vote for Mr. Gilly, cause he had it from good authority that the other feller had agreed to order the legislate to pass a bill legalizing the wearing of the pants by married vim men. Then I sent out a circular to every doubtful German voter, telling them that the Republican candidate, when he was a boy, had licked a Dutch boy bigger in him, and called him a puddin-headed, pot-stomached, pretzel-thieven son of a beer-drinking and sour-kraut at Dutchman and the time had come for the Germans of New York to rebuke at the polls such a flagrant insult to the most useful and respectable standbys of the Nashuan, the German citizens. I never seen anything do better in my life. With the exception of the few votes what the Republicans had for I got my work in, mine captured the whole cities of New York and Brooklyn, and the beer and whiskey what's been sent to rural districts will give us the whole state by a big majority. When I get big, Mr. Diary, I guess I'll hire myself out for a professional political wire-puller. Chapter 23 Excitement is at fever heat, and tin horns and bonfires is seen and heard everywhere. We've swept the whole state like a avalanche, and the Republican Party is deeder in a door nail. Me and Joe Gilly is going to run this air government now for a while, and you bet we'll run her with discretion and make a pile. I'm the hero of the democracy and John Kelly give me and Jimmy a five-dollar bill apiece, so as we'd have money enough to have some fun with, cause Mr. Gilly says I've been working pretty hard, and he guessed I'd better take a rest tomorrow. The back street was lined with dudes tonight, and every one of them crowded up to Lillian when she come out the stage door, but she didn't speak to any of them. They was all pretty hot, but they don't regret the way they voted, Cause they have the satisfaction of knowing that the executive mansion LL have a occupant what has a very aesthetic blending of colors in his makeup. The Republican candidate what's got licked has gone and got awful mad at the Methodist conference and swears, by golly, he'll never donate another oyster to a church supper, and his remains LL be smoldering down below for them ungrateful hypocrites LL hold another mute social in his house. His wife says she's going to sue them for the board bill of them hoary-headed old delegates, what's been palmed off on her for the last fifteen years. She says she always expected something to happen, cause when the Young Men's Christian Association Convention come off, they sent all the young and good-looking delegates over to Wittermasher's, cross the street, and didn't give her any body but a lot of old men, what was just walking round to save funeral spences. The members of the Society of Henpecked Husbands is looking like they'd been drawed through a knot hole, cost their wives have been wearing the pants again, and given them a taste of discipline for voting for a man what has as outspoken anti-women's rights views as Mr. Gilly. I peeped in the windies of several banks on my way home, and most all of the clerks has a scart, and hunted look in their eyes, but I guess they're safe, cost the one who knows, don't know quite as much as they think he does. The Germans is jubilant, Cause they all helped to rebuke a insult I guess they wouldn't feel so awful proud of themselves if they'd heard John Kelly and Mr. Gilly talking about em, 
jest for election, when they was considered doubtful, and Mr. Gilly said, the Dutch. Politicians is pretty persnickerty anyway. I believe when I get to be a big man I'll start out as a machinery and devote my energies to save on the souls of political office seekers and candidates. Tain't no use trying to save their bodies, cause the devil's got a lean on them already. Chapter 24 I've lost all confidence in gals and human nature, lost it all at one fell swoop. Yesterday I'd been willing to bet a twenty-cent cigar that my gal, Maria, would have leapt cross one of the flues of hate eyes for me. But I was deceived, yes, Mr. Diary, I was wonderfully and terribly deceived in her. As I told you last night, me and Jimmy got a holy day today and ten dollars to spend on having a good time. So this morning we dressed up in our Sunday school Chloe's, and went downtown to the property shop, and each bought ourselves a false mustache and canes. Then we went up to the barber's shop and had our hair banged. When we was three you wouldn't been able to tell us from full blood and lush swells. We was just two-two, walking up and down Union Square, puffing at our ten centers, like we own all New York and half of Brooklyn. You bet we made some mashes on the Vim Min. About one clock we estiationed ourselves where we'd meet our gals as they went to school. Jimmy's gal, Josie, and my Maria run together. Pretty soon they come long together, laughing and torquing. Then me and Jimmy braced ourselves up, and as they went by we winked. Josie she winked back, but Maria she said orful sweet. How to do? So we followed them up. Pretty soon Maria slowed up and said it's a nice day. I told her it was, then I says if she wouldn't like to take a walk, she said. She was greed if Josie'd go long, cause if they went walking they'd have to play hooky, and one dar sent do it without the other. After some persuasion, Josie agreed to go long, so I offered my arm to Maria, and we had a big time till about five o'clock. Then we says to the gals if they'd like to go to the theater in the evening, they thought it'd be or dash, full nice, but they didn't believe their moss would trust them to go with strange gentlemen. Cause it wouldn't be right. I asked her if there wasn't some way to fix it. Maria said she guessed she could tell her ma. Georgie was going to take her, and then Josie could say, Georgie had an extra ticket, and warranted her to go long, so we agreed to meet em, at the corner, about seven o'clock. They was there on time, all dressed up to kill, and we took him down to the standard, and had a big time. When the show was out, we went to a restaurant, and had some oysters. While we was in them, I asked Maria who the Georgie was who tuck her out. Oh, says she, he's a red-headed devil, what works in the buster office, and ain't a bit lick you. Ma likes him, and thinks he's awful steady, and she ain't afraid to let me go any place with him. He's mashed on me bad, and thinks I'm in love with him, so he spends all his money on me, and I just go with him, cause he takes me to a nithing what comes along. It's fun to see him. He's so green, and besides, he never fixes up any, and I'm getting most ashamed to be seen on the street with him. By this time I was feeling pretty bad, but I managed to keep up and make believe I was fearful in love with her, and got her to promise never to go with Georgie Agin. I had a bottle of perfume in my pocket, and just before we left the res tyrant, I put some on the gal's handkerchiefs, then I hauled off my false mustache, and soon Maria seen, I was her Georgie and begun to cry and lick her heart would brack. I felt sorry for her, but I told her to dry up her eyes. I guess I must give them the perfume out of the asafidity bottle, 
Cos, soon as she rubbed her face you never smelt such a overpouring smell in all your life. We had to keep him at arm's length, all the way hum, and if we'd been the Tsar of Russia and Queen Victoria, combined, the people wouldn't have given us more room on the sidewalk I felt sorry for them, cos they cried, and felt so bad, all the way home, and, if I could have got close enough to Maria, without being smothered I'd kissed and made it, all up. It's a blessing that her ma and pa's got Qatar orful bad, or there might be war in her house. I'm going to send her the following note in the morning, and next time I go to see her I'll fix up a little, cause a fellow can't blame a girl for going back on him if he don't think enough of her to dress up neat. Chapter 25 The lady what dropped a article of wearing apparel in the post office, last evening, can have them by callin on the devil at this office and proven property. The above is a advertisement what I had put in the buster this morning and all day long I've been kept busy attending to the answers. The fuss lady what come in had dropped a plume out of her hat. She give me a full description of it, what it cost, and said she knowed it was hers what I'd found, and then I showed her the article and asked her if that was it. She blushed up or for red, and sailed out of the office like I'd insulted her. Yesterday must have been a orful bad day for vim in loosen things in the post office, cost there's bout two hundred ben to the office. Some lost their teeth, yithers their bangs, cloaks, slippers, overshows, gloves, skirts, handkerchiefs, bustles, and most everything what a woman could pile on her, and I had to show every one of them the article what was found, and ask them if that was it, and curious enough, every one went off mad and indignant. On towards night I was just beginning to wonder whether, in a case like this, honesty was the best policy, or whether it wouldn't have paid better for me to have tuck em home to ma when a maddened lady, of doubtful age, come into the office, and said, Young man, have they got C, D, marked on the band? I said, Yes, marm. Well, they must be mine, cost my name's Caroline Duncan, and I always mark my Chloe's C, D, for short. I didn't know I'd lost them till I got hum, after I'd been down to the post office sending a letter to Tom. That's my feller what's been to China for ten years. Then I give in to her and putting them under her arm, she walked out as happy as could be. I thought I was through with my trouble with women's wearing apparel for one day, so I started hum. I'd only got to the corner of Spruce Street, when a great strappin' pearliceman come up to me, and clappin' me on the shoulder said, I've got you, Sonny, this time. Come along now, or I'll be after making you. I seen discretion was the better part of Vier, so I let him leave me. When we got to the station he preferred a charge of larceny against me. Then they asked me if I had any body what'd go my bail, so I got him to send for Mr. Gilly. When he arrove, he come up to me, the tears streaming down his cheeks, and said, Georgie, I'm sorry to see you in such a position, but you'd better plead guilty, and ax mercy of the court, cause they've got a sure case agin you. If you'd only been sharp enough to hide the property, it wouldn't been so bad. Just then the lady what the shawl was stole from, come to identify it. Mr. Gilly and me was looking on. The lady looked awful close, and said that looked just like her shawl, what was all black, only this one didn't have no yellow stains on the corner where she dropped the lemon juice on to hers. Mr. Gilly looked at it close, and pretty soon he said, Why, Georgie, that's our office towel. Then I seen all through it in a minute, cause there was the towel what I'd been carrying home to get washed and the perliceman, 
seeing the end sticking out from under my coat, and knowing that a black shawl had been stole, arrested me as the thief. Then they had a big laugh, and Mr. Gilly set him up for the crowd. He said he knowed I was orful honorary, but he never could believe that I'd steal anything. Chapter 26 There's a lot of fellers what have brownstone mansions uptown, and French cooks what dish him up everything good, from frog's limb, er, leg to the posterior stenchion of a eel's spinal column, fricasseed, with mushroom ketchup sauce. Besides that, they've got lots of money in the bank, and won't think no more of giving some Anglo-Saxon professional beggar a thousand-dollar keepsake than they would have let in their folks go to Long Branch or Newport during the all-fired heat-ed term. I don't mean, Mr. Diary, that all the wealthy people of New York are alike, but I have reference to that class of people what are la barren under the impression that editorial stomachs was patented, and built specially and exclusively for the absorption and digestion of printing house paste and wind puddings, with written fluid sauce as a condiment and appetizer. These are the people who always allow their newspaper bills to accumulate till they drop off, and the editor gives them a bang-up introduction on their long journey, in the hope that the administers of their estates will allow his bill-feigned hope that is, Coswer was the administer that was ever known to acknowledge a newspaper bill as genuine. They all go on the principle that all editors is liars, and all big liars is editors. And take the same deduction, what is always this? A bill presented by a liar must be a lie, on its face. Therefore, it is unallowable. The reason I've been a Sally Kyson, Mr. Diary, is, cost the expenses of the campaign have been pretty heavy on Mr. Gilly, and yet haven't had a chance to dip his fingers into the state treasury, he was running a little short of funds. So this afternoon he give me a lot of old bills to collect. I found it pretty had work costs every body paired to be particular fond of pay in all their bills next week. I was getting discouraged, and I didn't like to go back to the office without no money, so I thought up a little scheme. There was a big flower dealer what out a bill of forty dollars, what it got out lord. So I went over to his office and AST the clerk to tell him I wanted to see him on particular business. The clerk said he was orful nagged, and I'd better call round next week, and perhaps he'd have time to talk to me. I insisted and told him to tell Mr. Pingnuthin that the business what I warranted to see him on was a matter of immense importance to himself. Soon as I got in, I said, Mr. Pingnuthin, we've got on to some very valuable information. Well, make your fortune, if the other flower men don't get it fussed. Now, if you'll pay up this bill, I'll give it to you at once, and you'll get the inside track on him. I seen he was getting interested, so I concluded by saying, now if you don't get this information, it may lead to your ruin. He didn't say a word, but went to the safe, and got out the forty dollars, and I receipted the bill, and asked him for a piece of paper, cause he might forget it if I didn't write it down. Then I wrote in big letters, Oh no man assent, and bidding him goodbye, I took a hasty departure. The scheme worked splendid every place I went, only at one old lawyer's office, and he said, Young man, I've been cheatin', fleecin' and beatin' everybody for the last forty years, and there ain't no newspaper man livin' what can tell me any easier way to mack a fortune. Get out. And I got. Mr. Gilly says I'm the boss collector, and ortair hire myself out to a mutual life and accident association as assessment gatherer. Chapter 27 
I guess the worry of collecting yesterday afternoon must have worked upon my mind, cross. Last night, I dreamt a dream. What had made each separate hair on the heads of every delicate subscriber stand on end and sing out. Pay up your newspaper bill, old feller, if you don't warrant a scorchin' in the dubious hereafter. Ma and Pa was out, cause it was prayer meetin' night at our church, so I went to bed early, cause I was afraid when they come home, they'd miss the whole mince pie what I'd eat. I just bout got to sleep, when I smelt a awful smell, suggestive of a straw hat revivin' shop, when they'd burned sulfur and brimstone, I looked down and behold, I seen a courtroom, with a lot of lawyers and clerks sittin' round a table and the judge in a pulpit what overlooked them. The people all looked like Barnum's skeleton man, only they didn't have no skin over their bones, and their eyes was made of fireballs and each of them had a long tail, like a snake. Pretty soon the judge said the court was open for business, and the sergeant at arms brought in a feller all dressed up with a gold walk and big charm what I recognized as one of our deadbeat subscree bears what had died last week. The judge looked him all over in a complimentary way and A.S.T. him if he'd always lived a honest and upright life. Your honor, said he, I've given of my substance to the poor. I've loved my neighbor as myself. I've surveyed for ten years as warden of a fashionable church, and tried to the best of my knowledge and belief to do right. Your honor, said the prosecuting attorney, what I recognize as the ex-religio journalistic editor of a defuncted alliance newspaper. May I A.S.T. the prisoner a question? You may, said Judge Satan, for it was his infernissimo himself. Prisoner at the bar, said the attorney. Did you pay your subscription to the buster for you checked your baggage through to Hay Dyes? No, sir, said the prisoner. I did not. I never thought it was particular, cos editors ain't like other mortals, anyway, and I never knowed it was a sin to beat em if you could. Yes, sir, your honor, said the prosecuting attorney. He confesses his guilt, and I find, by looking over the record, he owes the Buster office for eight years' subscription besides a whole string of free advertising what the editor give him outer goodness of heart. Not only that, but I notice in the day book that just one week for he departed he ordered his paper stopped, cause he was opposed to supportin', by his money, a damn mercurtic candidate for governor. You see, your honor, there is nothing left for you but to pass sentence on the prisoner. Prisoner at the bar said the judge. This year court sentences you to hard labor shoveling flames at a temperature of six thousand degrees for ten thousand years, during all which time you will sing I want to be an angel, and with the editor's stand, sheriff, conduct the prisoner to furnace number five hundred and sixty-one, next to Gittos. Soon as he'd gone, a colored gentleman was brought in, and in answer to their questions as to his morale standing he said, Judge I knows I see a hard city's in. And I've done gone and sin pretty nigh all the sins what I knowed of. Stealin' fowls, hooking nickels out of the contribution box, appropriatin' millions what I'd no legal right and title to, gettin' converted at camp meetings so as I could mash one of them pity cistern, and other offenses too numerical to mention. But if this year court you give this nigger a show, I'll try to lead a different life. Prisoner, did you ever tack a newspaper? said the prosecuting attorney. Yes, sir. I see scribed for the Christian advocate for about six years, and I've paid it up in advance for most a year to come. Bobby, my boy, said the court to his right-hand man, go order the cook to kill the fatted ram, and prepare a bang-up layout, cause this here colored brother is a man, 
molded after my own heart. Shake, my man, said he, shoving his right bony hand to the colliered fellers. And after we've faced and deserted my privat opera house and taken in the new skeleton bailey attractions, I'll drive you through my subterranean dominions, for you tack the express for ski station, and you bet you'll say this here devil ain't as bad as he's painted, cause he knows how to honor a distinguished guest. Then the scene vanished from my vis hun, and I woke up, hollering with a pain in my program, and Ma had to get me a dose of brandy and ginger, out of the flask, what Pa carries, when he goes a-fishin'. Chapter 28 This morning news was sorta dull, so the city editor sent me down to the stock exchange for to write up the antics of the bulls and bears. When I got down there I guess the animals hadn't got round, but their keepers was pretty numerous, and made a good deal more noise than they would theirselves. I was showed up to the Vister's gallery, so as I could get a good view of the fight what was going on tween the Grangers and Colas. The way they do their fittin' puts me in mind of when we used to go to school, cause they chew up a lot of paper, and make spit balls outer it, and then paste each other on the eyes with them. Jay Gould is the name of a little bit of a feller, he ain't much in size, but he's hail colony when it comes right down to spit ball fights, cause he pasted old Russell Sage and Vandy built out of their boots, hidden fair in the eyes every time. When they was getting pretty well tired out, a lot of fellas what was hit, come out, and the other formed rings round them and sung a song what sounded like it was made up of five-eighths and three-one-quarters. I should think they'd be ashamed of themselves, great big men, spending their time playing a game what boys, as big as me, wouldn't do for a nickel. I seen they was disgracing us, New Yorkers, so I thought it was time to put a stop to it, and bring him down to business, so I sung out awful loud. Gentlemen, Thursday a big fire in the Union Depot in Chicago. Then they all looked up to see who was talking, and recognized me, as connected with the buster. You died to see em flying round. The fellows what do the bullin was pretty near crazy, covering up their stocks, with margins. Stocks come flying down, like lightning, and the bearish poor shun of the company was making an immense pile of money. The country lambs what the bulls and bears had been fleecin', so as their wives and gals could have wool enough to stuff the footstools with, what they was making for Christmas boxes, heard what I said, and tumbled to it, and sold all the western trunk stocks. I didn't say nothing till I seen they'd got a good deal onto the bulls, then I sent out Agin. Gentlemen, the big fire what, I said, was in the Union Depot at Chicago, is still burning fiercely in the heater, what's located in the cellar. I didn't W.A.T. to say goodbye, cost the firelight gleam what gleamed at me from about a hundred pairs of eyes boded no good for the buster's devil. When I got back to the office a note was wanting for me, what read. I assure you, Mr. Diary, the temptation was pretty strong, but I thought of my integrity and principles, and wrote. Chapter 29 Last night I went over to call on Maria. I thought I'd be prepared, so I washed myself in Ma's lavender water, and sprinkled eau de colony all over my dust. When I knocked at Maria's door, I stepped down off the steps and what for her appearance. At last she come, and blushed up awful when I AST her if it was all right. She said she didn't know, cause she'd got so used to it she couldn't tell, but she thought it was all right, cause she'd been standin' tween two open windows for the week, and if it weren't gone by this time, she guessed it'd stick to her for life. I walked up a little closer to her and said, Maria, come here. She come, 
and cautiously and carefully I put my nose near her, and sure enough I couldn't smell nothing but a slight odor of chloride of lime and a lingering of carbolic acid. Then I kissed her and made her get fixed up, cause we was going to report a oyster supper what come off at the U.P. Church. When Maria and me got there most everybody had eat their plate of hot water, what the church warden had set in down on one of the oyster stalls at Fulton Market for about a week, so as it did inhale assay very flavor. Soon as Maria and me had got through our plate, the excitement begun, and the ladies all brought round their books for to have us give em ten cents, and put down our names for a chance in the one lonesome oyster what the stew had been made of. When the vim men had fleeced all the fellers outer every cent they had, and made em turn their pockets inside out, so as to be sure they weren't trying to keep back any five-dollar bills, the preacher got up on a platform and drawed a number out of a hat full, what a little gal held over her head. For he read out the number, he called on one of the deacons to offer up a prayer, that the Lord might open up the heart of the lucky drawer, to donate the oyster to the church, so as they could hold another supper, without incurring any more such extravagant expenses. Then the minister said forty-six was the number, what he'd drawed out, and that it stood opposite Mr. Wiley's name. Now Mr. Wiley is a awful rich banker, and is always done on things to the church, so he got right up and said he'd give it to the good cause. Then there was some cheering, and everybody crowded round the gasoline stove to walk the cook deposit the oyster in a can, so it could be stowed away in the warden's bugler-proof safe. After delving round the bottom of the pot for some time the ladle come up, with its astatic freight, the black and green speckled toad, what I'd slipped into the stew, while the prayer was going up. Something must have been epidemic in that church, cause everybody, exceptin' me and Maria, got to coughin' and spewin' up, and prayin' good Lord deliver us. Chapter 30 I ain't no devil no more, cause this mornin' Mr. Gilly informed me that I was gettin' too big for my persician, and he'd hired another boy to act as the buster's devil. He says I can fury round and act in the cupasserty of miscellaneous reporter and write up anything I think worthwhile, till it was time for us to go to Albany and get inaugurated. Then he'd warned me to act as his private secretary, cause he knowed I had his interest at heart, and was discreet enough not to give him away. I don't know yet whether I'd better accept his offer to become a politician, cause I've got my mind set on the journalistic profession, and it's about the easiest way to mack a fortune and a name what I could get. I'll think over the matter, Mr. Diary and if I can't get a situation as a Washington gossiper or a job on the Herald to write up the aborigines of Kennedy, I may go on to Albany and write up all the tricks of the politicians just to keep myself in practice till we go outer office. I must close, Mr. Diary, cause I'm going down to the hotel to interview Kenobab, Ingesol, and see if a fella like me would stand some show to make money and a big name if he was to start out as a genuine devil, brock loose from hate eyes.